Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. SOS, March 11th, number 2021. 36. 36. We've done three dozen episodes. How are you doing, David? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing fine. I'm looking forward to our our, our uh, talk today. Yes. So I want to point this out before we get started. I will be reading off of Caliber, which is my e-reader program. But I want to say this. I actually do have a subscription to Foreign Affairs. <laughs> so don't... Foreign Affairs, don't be mad at me. I pay you guys every month. I also download a digital version on my e-reader, which I don't think is officially sanctioned by you guys. But I only do that because I pay for Foreign Affairs. I've been doing it for about four years now. It's a great magazine to read because I feel like... Journal. Yeah. I mean, it's a magazine slash journal. What do they call it? I don't know. But same thing. I feel like there's not that much coverage of foreign affairs in the regular media. And let me pull up what I'm doing here. Uh, The editor, who has been the editor since I subscribed four years ago, Gideon Rose. I'll just quickly point out what he said. This is his last issue. I don't know how long he's been with the magazine or what, but he says... Um, this is the hundredth year that foreign affairs has been in publication and foreign affairs was founded in the wake of world war one by Americans who believed that with great power came great responsibility. The United States could not hide from the world. It had to engage intelligently and constructively that required a space for informed public discussion. And that meant starting a magazine. George Kennan captured the vision of the new publication in his obituary for Hamilton Fish Armstrong, the magazine's dominant figure. He said, A forum for the opinions of others, expressing no opinion of its own. A place for fact, for thought, for calmly reasoned argument, with no room in its columns for polemic, for anger, for personal attack. A literary tone that would be quiet and serious, but never pretentious. Importance as the main criterion in selection of materials, whether the importance was to come from the significance and originality of the subject matter or from the authority of the author, but no concessions to any would-be contributor, humble or great, when it came to clarity of thought, significance of content, and moderation of language. That was the vision for foreign affairs. And that does not sound like CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News now, does it? No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, I find what you tell me very interesting, uh, very thoughtful, very professional, and I, I kind of wish I had a subscription to Foreign Affairs myself. I don't, but I'm thinking maybe I should. Oh man, I'm you're, frozen. You're frozen. Um, I think I can hang up and call back. We're just having some technical issues today, aren't we? It's, I've been frozen before it comes back, but it's not coming back. It's been uh, it's been a tough day for I that my broadcast software is ma- messing up. You're frozen, and you know what I think might be an issue? Windows update. Mm-hmm. 
I got a Windows update last night. Now everything's screwed up. I don't like the updates. Um, I don't like them. Nothing ever works right. Yes, I think it's, that it keeps you from getting a deadly virus that would sort of just cripple your computer completely. That's why they give you the updates. So it's your pay robbing Peter to pay Paul with these updates. But let me hang up on you, and I'll call you right okay. back, and hopefully we get you back. Okay. I'll switch to just me. So, yes, I hope you're enjoying this thrilling content. And you're back on the broadcast. Okay. Yes. And I yep. think, I, I hope everyone's enjoying this thrilling technical difficulties content. It's like uh, being on a call at work, you know. Um, there's a lot of technical difficulties in your work with the Zoom calls that you do, right? I had a problem the other night. I had to, I had to hang up and call back in, in a meeting. Yeah. So uh, you, can you really blame us? It's, it's a tough, we're all adjusting. And sometimes it's not our fault. The computer just doesn't work right. But enough belly aching, clay belly aching. Let's get to uh, foreign affairs. How does that sound? That's good. So let me pull this up. This is called present at the recreation. U.S. foreign policy must be remade, not restored. And I got to pull out my, because you get a little bit extra in the print version. You get a small bio. Jessica T. Matthews, that's the author. She's a distinguished fellow and former president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. That's who we're hearing from. This article is in the March-April 2021 issue. Mm -hmm. I think the title is intriguing. It's uh, must, uh, U.S. foreign policy must be remade, not restored, which is fascinating because once you tear things down, they're not going to come back the way they were before. And that's why we have to be very, very careful how we proceed with things. Because whatever you do, some things can't be undone. They have to be restored. Mm -hmm. And for those who are just listening... I mean, re I mean remade, not restored. Yes. Uh, there is a picture. Foreign Affairs does graphics. And it's a guy in a suit, sort of maybe Joe Biden-esque looking... And he's picking up lines, red and white lines, and then you see the square of the flag stars. So the flag has been sort of scattered across the ground, and it looks like a Joe Biden-type character is picking up the pieces. And I will say, throughout well, the stars and whether well, stars or stripes are all on the ground, all distributed around, uh, like it fell apart. Yes, right, David. Now I and will trying to pick up the pieces. I will say also though. During the Trump presidency, you know, I read that thing about all viewpoints are welcome as long as they're well-reasoned. They had foreign policy advisors. They had Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, uh, write in the pages of foreign affairs and defend decisions that the Trump made vis-a-vis -vis foreign policy. And a lot of times they would point to individual things and why they were a good idea. One thing that foreign policy people from reading foreign affairs for the last four years uh, a lot of them agree on. There's broad consensus that some of the tactics of the Trump administration were beneficial, but the overarching strategy was detrimental to America's long-term uh, standing in the world, if that makes sense. 
I, I think that's a very good point because even though you do something good, that one act doesn't justify a larger strategy that's moving you down the wrong path. Yes. But in defense, so you, have to, you, have to, you have to think short term and long term, and you have to think tactical and strategic at the same time. Yes. And in defense of foreign affairs, it's not this lefty rag. It's the it's uh, produced by the Council on Foreign Relations, and it's a bunch of foreign policy experts. If that makes sense, it's not we don't like Trump because he's on the right and we're on the left. It's we don't like Trump because we care about U.S. foreign policy issues and we think that he didn't. <laughs> That's um, and it's not even that they don't like Trump. They think that he made errors in his strategic judgment during his presidency. So should we get into the article itself? Well, l- let me just say something what you just said. Uh, it's not about the person. It's about what he says and what he does. And that's pretty much opposite of what Trump says and does. Mm-hmm. In other words, if, if he hears something that he doesn't like, he attacks the person. Foreign affairs does not do that. Yes, I said it wrong. It's not that we don't like Trump. It's we didn't like Trump's foreign policy strategy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so they analyze what he does, they analyze the foreign policy, and it's an academic uh, exercise that's saying, look, here is a well-thought-out uh, 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 critique on what he does, and it's not an attack on him. Mm-hmm. And I want to point out, that's the opposite of what Trump has done. He attacks the people. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that works in this country. And so that's an indictment on this country, on the people of this country. You don't listen to reason. You listen to emotion. We've talked about that before. But I'm interested to hear what this article has to say. All right. So let's get into it. For years, Joe Biden has portrayed the presidency of Donald Trump as an aberration from which the United States can quickly recover. Throughout the 2020 U.S. presidential campaign, Biden asserted that under his leadership, the United States would be back at the head of the table. But a return to the pre-Trump status quo is not possible. The world and the United States have changed far too much. And although hailing the return of American hegemony might seem comforting to Americans, it reveals a degree of tone deafness to how it sounds to the rest of the world. When people elsewhere look at Washington's track record over the past two decades, they don't see confident leadership. What they see instead are a series of disasters authored by Washington, chief among them the 2003 invasion of Iraq and subsequent destabilization of much of the Middle East, and the 2008 global financial crisis. During those decades, Washington also pursued an ineffectual war in Afghanistan, an incoherent policy in Syria, and an ill-judged humanitarian inventions, most notably in Libya. All right, opening paragraph. Coming out strong, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Should we keep going? Yeah. The, the failures have also been domestic. To date, the United States has handled the COVID-19 pandemic worse than any other major country. Americans make up only 4% of the world's population, but account for a staggering 25% of global COVID-19 cases and 19% of deaths from the disease. The failure has come at all levels. A stunning lack of national leadership, an alienated population unwilling to make modest sacrifices in the common interest, and a healthcare system that is deeply inequitable and administratively fractured. 
These maladies predated Trump, of course. President Barack Obama's administration had to design international agreements such as the Paris Climate Accord and the Iran nuclear deal in a way that would avoid the need for formal ratification. Because the world knows that the U.S. Senate has been unable to approve a multilateral treaty for nearly 15 years, even one modeled directly on U.S. domestic law. But Trump's America-first populist nationalism has cut deeply into the foundation of American foreign policy, as has his administration called into as his administration called into question long-standing alliances, embraced authoritarian rulers, denigrated allies, and withdrew the United States from a wide range of international agreements and organizations that it founded. Beyond the moves that garnered headlines were a great many more that made it impossible for valuable institutions to operate. Under Trump, for example, the United States vetoed every nominee to the World Trade Organization's appellate body, purposely keeping the number of judges below the required quorum and therefore depriving all 164 WTO members, countries of the means to resolve disputes. All right, let's unpack those first few paragraphs. Wow. So this person... Their criticism is roundly of George Bush, his invasion of Iraq, the 2008 financial crisis, which was deregulation of the financial industry that allowed these bundled derivatives to sort of tank, you know, these tranche investment opportunities to tank the economy. Mm -hmm. And those undermined faith in America. And then Obama, the criticism of Obama in those first few paragraphs is that he didn't even try to work with the Senate because he knew that it would be impossible. So he penned foreign policy deals like the Paris Climate Accord and the Iran nuclear deal based on the power of executive order, which we've learned over the past four years, can be undone simply by one election. It's not lasting like a like a legislation would be. Right. Uh, so the criticism is more heavily on the right side of the aisle, but I guess that's just the bold move of, of invading Iraq was bad for the U.S. long term strategically, in her view. And, of course, she's a fellow at the Center for Peace, so she wouldn't like an unnecessary war, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. They would naturally be against war. Yeah. Especially one as, like, frivolous... As the Iraq War, you know, it's like I know. Um, the all these people from Saudi Arabia attacked the Twin Towers, and then they fled to Afghanistan. So we need to declare war on Iraq. That's exactly what happened. You know, the attackers on nine eleven they were mostly Saudi nationals, and they found refuge in Afghanistan. And so for some reason, we thought that was enough justification to go to war with Iraq. And that doesn't make a lot of sense when you when you put it that way, right? That's right. Well, they went to war with Iraq. Well, they, they drummed up reasons uh, why we need to uh, go, with, go to war with Iraq. Mm-hmm. So they And the reasons after they went in there weren't there because of weapons of mass destruction and stuff. So they drummed up reasons. Uh, and also they had economic reasons. And so they just started drumming up things. And that's really dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime you go to war, uh, you, America should not be a country 
that goes to war. I think that uh, hopefully, well, there will always be wars, but hopefully uh, there's going to be a country that stands up, say, no, we're not going to go to war to solve this. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to find other other means. But do you notice this lady is not saying that a blunder was the subsequent, the, the initial invasion of Afghanistan? I mean, we're mired down in Afghanistan, too. But I feel like because of the events of 9-11, a retaliatory attack against Afghanistan could be justified in the minds of American foreign policymakers. That's where the Al-Qaeda is being sheltered by the Taliban. Let's go attack them. Whereas the attack on Iraq had no real justification. That's right. So it's like, uh, that was, I mean, a whole other war, trillions of dollars, that you sort of didn't really have a reason for. Should we continue to read the article? Or maybe they went into Iraq because they knew they could win. Uh, And uh, because they knew uh, their enemy. And so it's kind of like, let's let's go into a war that we know we can win. And uh, and like they were, Schwarzkopf warned them. But if you go into this, I think it was Schwarzkopf. uh, Yeah, in 92, he warned them. He warned him. So yeah. look, if you go, if you even if you win, you're not going to win. Yeah. <laughs> and so what have you won? I mean, uh, so he, he warned him. Look, be well, careful. The prize you're gonna you're gonna win. You may not want the prize. There was famous reporting from back then too. They said, "Oh, the Al Qaeda people responsible for this attack on America are they're hiding in Afghanistan. They're being sheltered by the Taliban." They're drawing up battle plans. The generals are. We're going to retaliate for this attack on our country. And the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, said, what's this? This No, we, we don't go into Afghanistan. We go into Iraq. And the generals say, but Iraq wasn't responsible for this attack. And Donald Rumsfeld said, and there's wide reporting on this, but there's no good targets in Afghanistan. So the, tar- the, the, the purpose of war was not weapons of mass destruction. It was... Iraq had something we wanted, right? Yeah, they had oil and they had uh, location Mm -hmm. uh, and they had resources and they had a place where they could they could actually win. And before we targets that they could they they had targets they could they could win. Actually, the principle there to me, the principle is like, oh, let's do this because we can win. Let's don't do this because it's a harder win. This is an easy win. Let's do the easy wins. Uh, the problem with that is, uh, even though you win, you get a target on your back. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what, what the United States did after the Iraq, Iraq War. We had a target on our back. Well, I will say this before we continue. I think yeah. the last paragraph is important. Uh, we'll go back to the... Um, okay. The Iraq War. So the United States was the leader of the liberal international order. That is multilateral, worldwide... Organizations, the UN, NATO, the World Health Organization. Um, in 1992, George H.W. Bush got UN approval to go and defend Kuwait, to defend the sovereign borders of Kuwait. And so he used these multilateral institutions to justify his Desert Storm slash Desert Shield. In 2008... He did not, uh, George W. Bush, the son, did not get UN approval, so he formed a coalition of the willing. We are going to have a coalition of the willing go and attack Iraq. Basically, who's with us? We're going in. 
And so it sort of showed a bit of contempt for these multilateral international institutions. Finally, we have Donald Trump. And it says, America first populism uh, cut deeply into the foundation of American foreign policy, which is often resolving disputes and working through these international institutions. Uh, he called into question long-standing alliances. He embraced authoritarian rulers. He denigrated our allies. And he withdrew the United States from a wide range of international agreements. So instead of we're going to respect these, but we're going to go around them when it suits our interests, that's what George H.W. Bush did. I mean, George W. Bush. George H.W. Bush, we're going to work with these agreements. George H.W. Bush says, we're going to still respect these agreements, but go around them when they don't fit our needs. And Donald Trump said, we're going to throw all these agreements by the wayside. The, the last 50 years of work, 80 years near, uh, of work we've done in foreign policy, screw it. We're done with it. We're going to do whatever we want. And so how do you feel about that? Especially, you know, this World Trade Organization, they can't resolve any trade disputes because Trump used the veto power to keep the, the judges below the required quorum. I, I guess foreign policy people don't see the strategy of the end game of not having a dispute resolution mechanism for world trade. When you start making those kinds of significant decisions, sometimes you can't undo those decisions. Sometimes you can't take things back. Mm -hmm. you, you can't go back the way they were. That's true in anything. And so if you burn your bridges, uh, you have to build new bridges. Uh, and so I think, yeah. Uh, so when he started pulling out of these long-term agreements, I thought, oh, man, uh, I, I think that uh, the principle here is that uh, if you're going to pull out of agreements where people are trying to work together, you're not at the table. If you try to do things yourself, you're going to be a lone ranger. You can't, you will not win being a lone ranger in the world. You have to work with people. And uh, that, that, to me, I just apart from foreign affairs, just a principle. Uh, nobody can do anything by themselves. You have to work with people, mm -hmm. and with and even our country, no matter who how how strong our country is, and our country is strong economically, militarily, we're strong. Uh, even we have been strong internally too. But anything can fall. Uh, everybody can fall. Anything can fall. And the best way to fall is to isolate ourselves from our allies. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, that's the beginning of the end. And so that's why you can't just go back the way it was. You have to build these bridges again. And somehow, not just the presidency, but our country and, the, and, and our Congress and our nation has to build strong alliances with our allies. We, we can't be embracing dictatorships. Yes. Because America should not be a dictatorship. Well, I think that, you know, one thing that struck me about this issue is all these experts, the foregone conclusion is that the foreign policy of the Trump era was really bad. And one example they point to is saying that he loves Kim Jong-un and they exchanged beautiful letters and then sort of turning his back on Angela Merkel of Germany. It would be like, you know, LeBron James on the night before the NBA Finals, you know, instead of, you know, 
going to bed early, you know, having a nice dinner with his teammates, drinking a bunch of water and going to bed early, he tells his teammates, screw you guys. I'm going to go party with the third string player on their team until four in the morning because I hate all of you. And then he shows up hungover because Kim Jong-un is the third string, you know, player on the opposing team. And he says, all right, you guys, I'm not going to pass it to any of you. I don't need you. I'm going to win this game by myself, even though I've been out there partying with uh, the, the, the other team. That's what Donald Trump did for four years, basically. So mm-hmm. enough of the analogy. Should we continue to read? <laughs> okay. <laughs> In short, what Biden regularly calls the power of our example is nothing like what it used to be. When it comes to the pillars of law-abiding democracy, the United States is now more of an example of what to avoid than of what to embrace. The country retains military primacy and the economic heft to impose sanctions, but the former has limited utility, and the latter are seldom effective when wielded unilaterally. To achieve its ends, Washington will have to heal at home, a long, slow process, while it rebuilds its power to persuade. As Secretary of State Anthony Blinken will likely lead to lead an important effort to rebuild morale and effectiveness within the country's oops, don't have it highlighted. Diplomatic Corps, luring back talented professionals who fled Trump's chaos, broadening recruitment, pursuing reforms to make the department's work more efficient and creative, and appointing diplomatic veterans to key posts at home and abroad. But such steps will take a long time to make a difference. Meanwhile, Biden's team may be seriously overestimating the leverage that the United States retains for initiatives that depend on its example, such as global summits, the president wants to convene on climate change and renewing democracy. Facing a globalized world in which power is dispersed and the United States' reputation is diminished, Biden will confront cautious, even skeptical foreign partners, a challenge to which American leaders are unaccustomed. Much of his agenda will have to be carried out through executive orders, which, the world knows, can be just as quickly undone by the next president. Foreign governments understand that last year's presidential election was not a repudiation of Trumpism. Even close allies have therefore been forced into a dangerous game of American roulette, dealing with a United States that can flip unpredictably from one foreign policy posture to its opposite. The logical response for them is to hedge, avoiding major commitments and keeping their options open, even when it comes to U.S. policies that would otherwise be welcome. In such an environment, everything that Washington hopes to achieve will be more difficult. <laughs> Very succinct argument. Kind of depressing, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but it's it's well taken. I mean, it's it's very logical, uh, very true. And people would say, no, it's not true. Well, it's very logical. And that's just the way things are. Mm-hmm. Whether you like it or not, that's that's pretty much how things are. That Those things have happened in antiquity and history. Uh, we're not the first person to fall to those uh, to that to those problems, and we're not going to be the last. Yes. Uh, and so I think any leader uh, of any leader, especially of the United States, should be a student of history, because I don't think that's uh, along with that argument which, that she made, which was very good. You know, it, it, uh, I, I, uh, a scholar could take that argument. And just parallel other nations who've done the same thing in the history of our world. Because <laughs> it's it's so common 
you burn bridges. You can't. You, you you're not going to go back to where they were. Mm -hmm. Those people. I mean, kind of like uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, people are smart. They're not going to get burnt by us again, and they know that we could vote in another Trump mm -hmm. because millions of people supported him. Millions of people supported us uh, just turning our back on our allies, yeah. turning our back on peace, turning our looking, embracing dictators who, who violate human, re violate uh, uh, human rights, right and left. Uh, and they support that. And, and so they saw America do that and they saw America vote the other way. But there's millions of people who will put someone in the White House who is supporting dictatorship and supporting these issues. Yes. And so they know that. So there's no way of going back. So there's a new era on how we negotiate, how we create. Uh, how do you how do you create a relationship with our allies that is only temporary? Yeah. <laughs> and so everything is going to be very temporary. Everything's going to be. Uh, with a caveat, well, that's fine now, uh, but then if you pull out, if and when you pull out of this agreement, we don't want to be left high and dry, okay? And so what's going to happen if we need help someplace? They're going to say, well, I will help you, but I can pull out anytime I want. So there is no real commitment. Yeah. And maybe there never was, you know, I mean, that's the argument that a realist would take uh, when looking at Donald Trump's actions. It's like maybe he's just exposing the world for what it is. You know, there's a mutual benefit, a mutual benefit to having an alliance like NATO. But Donald Trump complained the whole time about us paying more. And it's like, yeah, we're paying more. We're basically vouchsafing the European Union's safety from Russia, you know, and now that Russia is not a military, I mean, they're still a military power, but nothing compared to the United States. What's the point of paying for this alliance? And it's, the alliance has purpose beyond uh, just the amount of dollars and cents that go in. You know, those relationships are, they give people a sense of security and they, they promote, you know, economic advancement and you're more likely to invest in the future if you're not worried about getting obliterated from the map in six months. And I think that, you know, to think of the foreign policy situation as what if we get wiped out? It's not like a, a game of risk. You know, I think that a lot of the benefit to stuff like this, to, to maintaining valuable alliances, is economic. It's trade. It's, um, you know, ensuring that we don't see the rise of illiberal authoritarian states sort of overtake the power of democratic states where people are free to do what they want. And I think that when you have a leader that would rather see authoritarian states than liberal democracies, he's not going to support the allies that are liberal democracies. I think it's a fundamental difference in ideology that's why he loved Kim Jong-un and he hated Angela Merkel because authoritarianism was the end game. And that's what we've been fighting against for 60 years. And that's why people have a hard time wrapping their head around it. Um, should we continue with the article? 
Yeah, well, the, uh, what I mean, when we need help, well, what if, if we need allies, uh, like in the Middle East or in Africa uh, or in uh, the Middle Eastern or Asia or Southeast Asia uh, or even Europe? Uh, what if things happen in the future when uh, we go to our allies and say, hey, we need help in these areas? Uh, they go, okay, well, I can help you this much. Well, we need this much help. I'll help you this much because this other stuff is too much risky with, with America. Uh, our, America is not a good ally. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, we're strong now. Uh, but then if we don't have allies in the world, our strength will start being uh, uh, diminished and just start being uh, uh, diluted. It keeps will keep being diluted, diluted, diluted. Mm -hmm. And so when you don't have strength with your allies, uh, that's really the beginning of the end. It's not going to be the end today or tomorrow, but it'll start declining and declining. Yeah. Uh, and so the re restoration has to, or the rebuilding has to come back uh, to where we have trust with our allies. And it's difficult because our system's not set up because they know one presidential election can change this and the Senate's not willing to pass a treaty. But what she did say was, there's carrots and there's sticks. Carrots are economic sanctions. Sticks are military power. And yeah, we have the most powerful military in the world, the United States, but military intervention is of limited use in the current geopolitical environment unless there's a war with China or something like that, God forbid. But the carrots, like you said, diluted, dilution of power, they really only work if Iran can't get semiconductors from the U.S., from Taiwan, from Europe, from Israel, and from China. Wherever semiconductors are manufactured, you know, we can place an embargo on them, but if Germany's got a semiconductor manufacturer, Ireland, and they say, oh, well, you know, the U.S., they've been a kind of a dodgy partner. And, yeah, they don't want us to sell semiconductors to Iran, but Iran's willing to pay a pretty penny for them, you know. So like the, that sort of undermines our credibility, and that's why we need allies, because the ability to influence nations to snap out of it and behave relies a lot on those allies. Like, what are we going to do? Go to war with Iran? It's much easier to try to coerce them economically into to policies that are more to our liking in the region. And even militarily, you say, oh, yeah, we, we have the power to overtake any country. Yes, but we do not have the power to overtake every country. And so, hey, uh, let's start a war in Iraq. Let's start a war in Afghanistan. Uh, oh, let's threaten a war in Iran. Uh, let's go here and here and here and here and here. And so after a while, uh, and they've they've had these warnings too, uh, you're going to start depleting your resources to where we become vulnerable vulnerable at home because mm -hmm. we we've just we've just spread ourselves way too thin. And there's no way that so yeah we're powerful, but just because you're powerful doesn't mean that you can conquer everybody. I mean, and look at the history. Uh, people who have conquered uh, uh, other countries and broadened their, their boundaries have gone so thin that all of a sudden they fell from within. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that there's something to be said that the United States is the number one oil producer in the world now. And 
there's a concerted shift from light, sweet, crude oil to things that are powered by electricity, like cars, cars, freight trucks. You know, so you need less diesel, less gasoline, and more, I don't know, natural gas power plants or wind farms or solar farms. You know, you could switch to renewables. And we don't need to worry about oil supply for some reason anymore because we're pumping more out of the ground than ever. So it's not like in the 2000s we went to war with China and Russia and we're bogged down there. Like you said, we can't fight every country. We didn't go to war against countries that had incredible military might. We went to war against relatively small countries with relatively small militaries and we're still there 20 years later, and we spent trillions of dollars. So what happens when you go to a war with a, a country that has considerable more resources, ganiness, command and control structures? You know, if, if Afghanistan took us 20 years and we couldn't figure it out, what would a war with China look like? That's, that's the scary thought. Or Russia. Well, speaking of wars, look at the Revolutionary War. I mean... Uh, England was so much stronger than us. They came over here and they were just going to destroy us. So did we fight them on the battlefield? No. Uh, we had pretty much guerrilla warfare. You know, and we picked at him, picked at him, picked at him, picked at him, picked at him. And, and it won. Mm -hmm. And so what's, what's uh, like Al-Qaeda uh, and, and uh, what are these all the smaller nations? Well, look at the United States. We'll pick at him, pick at him, pick at him. And so they have a little bit here, a little bit here. And every time they win, they win, but they lose a little bit more of their resources. They win, but lose more of their resources. And uh, all of a sudden, not only do they lose their resources militarily, they're changing the attitude back home. Yeah. Um, let me just pull something up real quick. Uh, so we just passed a $1.9 trillion dollar. COVID relief bill. Yeah. COVID relief bill. And that bill is, the provisions in that bill will cut, they say, child poverty in half in America because of CHIP programs, money to uh, women and children, you know, food benefits, housing benefits, tax cuts. The number of children that are living in poverty will be cut in half due to the one9 uh, trillion dollar relief bill. As of 2017, uh, 2.4 trillion in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So if we would have spent that, I mean, it's a, the classic guns and butter argument. That's what they call it in political science. You could spend your money on guns or you could spend your money on butter. If 1.9 trillion would have, will cut child poverty in half, we could have eradicated child poverty instead of going to war with Iraq and Afghanistan. That's that's all I'm saying. I mean, that's it's the classic guns and butter argument. Should we keep reading the article, though? Because I'm sure she okay. has some more insights. I mean, just those few paragraphs we got going in 20 minutes. Um, we'll just read the next section. Picking up okay. the pieces. That's sort of a callback to the picture of Joe Biden picking up the pieces of the stripes and stars. 
Unless there is a current crisis, foreign policy generally plays a negligible role in U.S. elections. That was never more true than in the 2020 Democratic primary campaign, in which every contender named repairing democracy at home as the most important, quote, foreign policy, end quote, priority. Biden was an extreme example. The fact sheet that accompanied his first major foreign policy address delivered in October 2019 listed remake our education system as the first bullet point and reform our criminal justice system as the second. <laughs> Nor was foreign policy a significant topic in the general election campaign. Even though the past half century has shown that what occurs overseas is more than likely to determine a president's legacy, disastrous wars of foreign imbroglios severely damaged the administrations of five of Trump's nine most immediate predecessors. Lyndon Johnson, the Vietnam War, Richard Nixon, the Vietnam War again, Jimmy Carter, the Iran hostage crisis, Ronald Reagan, the Iran-Contra affair, and George W. Bush, the Iraq War. Foreign policy is also the source of sudden surprises that call for leaders with experience in rapid, high-stakes decision-making and a knowledge of recent history. Nonetheless, voters don't seem to care much, and thus, neither do candidates. Still, Biden's intentions can be inferred from his record in government. From what he has said and written in the past few years, and particularly from his early high-level appointments, although together those things shed a good deal of light on what he will try to do, it is too early to know what a U.S. Senate that features the thinnest possible Democratic majority will allow him to accomplish, or how doubting foreign governments will respond. Unknowable, too, are the effects of dangers now building offstage, the kind of systemic shocks that have become almost a norm of the last several decades. I don't know what she means by that. But finally, there are practical issues of sequencing that get lost in campaign rhetoric. For instance, it is one thing to say, as Biden has, that new trade agreements will have to wait until after the federal government has made major investments in infrastructure and research and development. It is quite another thing to do that in practice. The world won't take a time out while the United States makes badly needed repairs at home. Okay, let's unpack a little bit of that. <laughs> Offstage systemic shocks. I think she's talking about all these insurrections. Uh, that are uh, all over the world. Uh, those those will affect us. Uh, you think, oh, yeah, well, these people in Somalia and everything. No, those things affect us, too. We're all connected. We're all connected. And I think there's an attitude uh, in the world that, uh, look, uh, America had riots. And so look at Hong Kong and look at Somalia. Look, look at all of the all over the world, people that from the Asian continent to the to the uh, African continent to Middle East everywhere. Yeah, there's insurrections. So there's, I mean, yes, yeah, it's, it's our policy doesn't dictate what happens everywhere, and there could be things that happen in Eastern Europe, in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East and Africa that are out of our control that we have to respond to. That's what she's talking about: offstage systemic shocks. We can't control. We're not the puppet master of the world. Things will happen, and we'll have to respond to them, and we didn't have any role in their creation or their evolution. That's what she means by an offstage systemic shock. Okay. I, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Should we continue and go to the next 
because uh, I think that she's sort of developing this argument. I think she'll finish the development of the argument in the next few paragraphs. Yeah, I think so, too. It is certain that Biden will make two overarching changes to the foreign policy of Trump and his secretary of state, Mike Pompeo. Biden understands the strength inherent in Washington's network of allies and friends and will do all he can to rebuild close relationships with them, especially in Europe. He will also reverse the Trump administration's dismissive attitude toward multilateral problem solving and the international institutions that make it possible. Washington will now show up at even the most boring meetings, represented by officials who know something about what is being discussed and who support, rather than oppose, the mission of the international organizations that convene them. These will be sweeping changes welcomed around the world. Okay, that's a pretty good point. We were making that point earlier. Part of Trump's failure is just turning his back on these multilateral institutions that have governed international relations for the last 50 years, saying we don't need them at a time where perhaps we need them more than ever. You know, I think that in 1992, when Bill Clinton was elected, you have the fall of the Soviet Union. You have America, what they called it, America's unipolar moment where America is the sole superpower in the world. The Soviet Union has fallen. They're in shambles. We haven't seen the ascendancy of China yet. Maybe then would be a time to say we don't need these multilateral institutions. Fast forward 20 some odd years, 25 years to the Trump's election. China is ascendant. Russia is meddling in our elections and pursuing information warfare across the globe. Britain is seceding from the European Union to become, you know, not part of that trade alliance anymore. And you say now is the time to pursue? I think that you turn away from the multilateral institutions at a time when you've needed them more than ever in the last 25 years. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I like how she says it. No matter how boring they're going to attend these meetings and the people who attend them actually know what's going on. Yeah, it's not someone that gave uh, it's not someone that gave a couple hundred thousand to your campaign. So they get a plum job in diplomacy. It's someone that's a professional, an expert who knows a child or a child or relative to someone who gave millions of dollars who have no idea, no idea what's going on. But, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, like the girl that sang uh, the national anthem at the Conservative Political Action Conference. We watched that, didn't you? I watched it, yeah. And you just hate to take the piss out of a girl. She's young, I mean, but she was bad. But we're not talking about that now. (laughs) I'm not going to say bad. I'm not going to say bad. I'm going to say she was off tune often. (laughs) And she could say, wait a minute, I couldn't hear, you know. Uh uh Sometimes you can't hear, and I, you know, I'll give her some some credit here, but the performance was off tune, and whether she did it or whether they undermined what she was doing, uh, it was off tune. <laughs> so you can say bad, but and it may not have been her fault. I don't know. It was awful. Maybe it was, it it was, was awful. off tune. Awful. <laughs> so these people are going to be at the table now in Biden's administration. And they actually know what's going on. Yes, to, to me that was that was that was really good. I saw, uh, uh, I think it was a John Oliver thing about energy efficiency, and the standards get set at these arcane meetings. Um, 
for energy efficiency, like how insulated your house has to be to be cool in the summer and warm in the winter without burning fossil fuels to run your furnace. Uh -huh. And and his point was, if you look at these meetings, they determine you, you could save a ton of energy if these standards were more rigorous. But the people that come to the meetings and advocate there and lobby the boards, they're all the natural gas companies and the furnace companies. And they, they don't want your house to be extremely well insulated. And they're the only ones that show up at these meetings. And they're the only experts that pre present arguments for standards. And if you're the guy in the room that says, you know what, I think that the standards need to be low. And it's like, well, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. You'll choose that. I think you gotta send experts, even no matter how boring a meeting is, because a lot of times it's those boring things that create uh, circumstances, regulations in the world that are beneficial to you. It's You're not right. inking a trade deal or, you know, the details of it's it's literally the nuts and bolts. The devil is in the details. Um, mm -hmm. Continue on with the reading. Yeah. Among specific priorities, climate change is clearly at the top of Biden's mind. The president has assembled a team whose strength signals the weight he attaches to the issue. A former Secretary of State, John Kerry, as a special envoy on climate. An experienced former head of the, newly, of the Environmental Protection Agency, Gina McCarthy, in a newly created senior environmental post in the White House. A highly regarded state official, Michael Regan, to lead the EPA. And a former Michigan governor, Jennifer Granholm, known for her expertise in alternative energy sources, especially electric vehicles, as head of the Department of Energy. Conversely, Granholm's nomination to lead the department, 75% of whose budget goes to nuclear weapons and infrastructure, and the choice of the retired General Lloyd Austin to head the Department of Defense, suggests that nuclear issues will not be a priority, as neither of them nor Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, is a widely recognized expert in the area. Biden will act immediately to extend the New START agreement, that's the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty Agreement with Russia, the last remaining major nuclear arms control treaty, and he will be prepared to spend a great deal of political capital to rejoin and rescue the Iran nuclear deal. But there are many other consequential items in the nuclear portfolio. As vice president, Biden took a strong stance in favor of reducing the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. defense strategy, limiting their use to deterrence rather than war fighting. The Trump administration took the opposite position, and Biden will need to try to wrench policy back towards his preferred course. Meanwhile, the country is in the early stages of a second nuclear arms race, this time with both China and Russia. A bloated $2 trillion nuclear modernization program is underway that urgently requires re-examinations. Also, new technologies are being developed that will raise the likelihood of an unintended nuclear war and erase the once sharp barrier between conventional and nuclear conflicts. Addressing any of this successfully will require leadership from someone of real stature in the field. Wow. A little scary. <laughs> Anytime you start talking about nuclear weapons, it's like, okay, the end of the world. That's some end of the world stuff. I'm scared. Well, yeah. Yeah, those things are very powerful. Mm -hmm. More powerful than people than people know. Uh you have to be you have to have a healthy uh with with some of the large nuclear weapons, you make one one mistake and you can't undo it. Mm -hmm. 
the whole world will be changed. Anyway, that that was Ralph. That that was that was good. It was well it was well said. Um, so yeah, I mean, we could continue on because I do think this final section is what Biden's plan is and her analysis of it. So should we just well, she, charge? Yeah, she left? set it up. Yeah, what she just did, she set it up. She said, this is where we are. This is what needs to be done. So what are we going to do about it? You mm-hmm. know? So and I think I think she set it up very well. She also said, you know, climate change is a focus, but nuclear is not. And Bill Gates has said the, an inconvenient truth, to quote Al Gore, is that wind power and solar power are getting better. But any chance of really clawing back fossil fuels to the point where climate change is in an unmitigated disaster will require revitalization of nuclear power throughout the world. It's like it's very cheap. interesting. It's cheap. You don't burn stuff. You don't put carbon into the atmosphere. And if you spent as much time and energy developing nuclear as you did renewables, you could have a viable power source for the grid for the foreseeable future. Fascinating, huh? Right. It is fascinating. And uh, I think the focus in the future is looking at reasonable uh, safe safeguards or uh, protecting uh, nuclear power for peaceful purposes to not be used for military purposes Somehow there's got to be a way to uh, uh, focus our energy in the right direction mm-hmm. because there's because because it's it's the energy's there the the nuclear capability is there. What are you going to use it for? Yeah, well, and I think uh, at the table we have to decide how do we limit that? How do we limit that? Now, is this two trillion dollar nuclear modernization program that's underway? Is that to build weapons to threaten China and Russia? Or is that to solve climate change by having nuclear power in America? You know what I mean? Uh, I know what you mean. So the thing of it is, is what is that two trillion going to be built on, uh, going to be spent on? Uh, What are you going to try to uh, uh, move forward? What initiatives are you moving forward? The technology or the, the focus or the restrictions or what, you know? Or getting the fissile material onto smarter bombs. Uh, That's right. That's definitely, I guarantee you that's part of the $2 trillion. The price tag wouldn't be $2 trillion if it wasn't, we're going to develop smarter bombs and better planes to carry them. And, I mean, that's part of the $2 trillion. That's why the price tag's so high. But if all of that $2 trillion were spent on, how would we use nuclear to solve climate change? I think that might benefit the world better than, how would we more effectively hit command and control structures in China or Russia. I, I don't know. That's just, I guess I'm just a softy. I'm a pacifist. Well, <laughs> and, and, the, and the hawks would, would argue, yeah, you can, you can develop the peaceful uh, application, but then uh, someone else uh, is developing the military applications. They, they're going to come and take over your country. And then all of a sudden, you'll, that peaceful, uh, uh, the, the nuclear power for climate change uh, will be controlled by another country and not you. Yeah. Because you can't protect it. You can't, you know, you won't have the ability to protect it. 
So there's arguments on both sides, and mm-hmm. uh, it's not an easy, it's not an easy question, not an easy issue. So, so, so how do you, so how do we move forward for foreign policy for the middle class? Let's finish <laughs> this. I think that this is the third, and then there's a, a wrap up section, and we're getting close okay. to an hour. But I'll just read this whole section till we get to the wrap up. We'll discuss it, and then we'll just read the wrap up and close. Sound good? Sounds good. So I'll read this whole section. Throughout the campaign, oh, a foreign policy for the middle class. That's what this is called. Throughout the campaign, Biden spoke of his intention to create a foreign policy for the middle class. No other theme was as prominent. In practice, however, his administration will have to face the question of whether such a thing actually exists. Changing the rules of international trade is a small part of the answer, but technological change has played a far larger role than trade in the loss of high-paying U.S. manufacturing jobs. That may be why, when discussing how his foreign policy will help Americans, Biden tends to veer quickly from trade to other issues, a higher minimum wage, better education, more affordable health care. All of those are important, but none is the province of foreign policy. Biden's Build Back Better economic plan promises enormous federal investments in infrastructure, roads, railways, the electric grid, and broadband internet, and in research and development in certain sectors. This is old-fashioned industrial policy. Whether it is good economic policy and where the money will come from are debatable issues. Whether they are the stuff of foreign policy is not. The more closely one examines the specifics, the more the concept of a foreign policy for the middle class slips away. First, among the true foreign policy challenges is the need for a balanced, non-ideological approach to China. Beijing's military buildup its provocative maneuvers in the South China Sea, its increasingly repressive policies, including egregious human rights abuses against Uyghurs in Xinjiang and a crackdown on pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong, and its withholding of critically important information on the emergence of the novel coronavirus that led to the COVID-19 pandemic, all form a threatening backdrop. The United States has no choice, however, but to develop a strategy for successful coexistence with this fast-rising economic and military power. Trump's approach swung from fawning praise for Chinese President Xi Jinping to unrelieved enmity and pointless name-calling. That sounds like Trump. The administration's single achievement on China was a ballyhooed trade deal that pushed the most important structural issues to a second round of negotiations, which never took place. Also sounds like Trump. Beijing pledged to buy an additional $200 billion worth of U.S. goods and services, but has not come close to actually doing so. Meanwhile, the percentage of Americans with an unfavorable view of China has increased from 47% at the beginning of Trump's presidency to 73% last fall. According to the Pew Research Center, even in the business and financial sectors, which still hope to profit from access to the huge Chinese market, views on China have turned decidedly negative. To reverse the downward spiral in relations, Washington needs to abandon the lazy habit of demonizing China and drop the pretense that the contest with Beijing is an ideological struggle akin to the Cold War. Instead, the United States needs to identify China's legitimate interests in Asia and around the world and determine what Washington should accept, where to try to outcompete China, and what it must confront. It should base its posture on relations with allies and potential partners across the region, recognizing how conditions have changed since the global financial crisis and avoiding an approach that would force Asian governments to choose between the two superpowers. 
Washington should get back into multilateral trade and economic agreements in Asia and join forces with European countries in its approach to Beijing, rather than allowing Europe to become a battleground in the U.S.-Chinese rivalry. Most urgently, Beijing, Taipei, and Washington, including some heedless members of the U.S. Congress, must recognize that the one-China policy is in imminent danger of unraveling after having kept the peace in an uninterrupted civil war for four decades. Instead of maintaining the policy's delicate balance of ambiguities, Trump and Pompeo played a game of chicken, thus inviting massive and utterly unnecessary risks. If the agreement falls apart, the possibility of war between China and the United States will be high, since for the United States to back away from a fight would, be, would mean abandoning its commitment to a democratic ally at tremendous reputational costs. A U.S.-Chinese war would be unlikely to stay non-nuclear. That is pretty chilling analysis, wouldn't you say? Well, what strikes me when you're reading that is that uh, when you start negotiating with other countries, uh, I, I'm not at the table, so I don't know what they what they do, what they think. But my experience is that uh, you have to look at the issues from your perspective, and then you have to put yourself in their shoes from their perspective. Uh, in other words, they'll say, well, uh, if I do this, then China will do this. Well, China would do this if they were you. But how do they think? How do they approach things? What's their culture? What are the, how, what are, where are they going? What's mm -hmm. their strategy? And what are their value systems? And I, I think uh, uh, I, we don't, we're talking about Trump. I don't think Trump had no, con Trump had no concept of that. He says I can bully people. And they're and and these he bullied people in his in his in his organization and they just they went away. Mm -hmm. You can't bully other countries like that. Yeah. How how do how do people in China how does China think? Uh, what's their values? Uh, what what is truth to them? And I think you can't demonize. I think it's totally true. You can't demonize other people. Oh, that's not right. That's wrong. That's how they do things. And why? In other words, like we say, it says, um, like we say, keep on talking and listen more than you talk, but understand what the other person's trying to say. I'll go a step further and understand why they're understanding that, why they mean that. People think differently. They have different value systems. They have different approaches. And we in America, United States, when we, when we begin negotiating with other countries, we have to think, how do they think and what's important to them? And we have different, China has been so different. The East is so different than the West. They don't think the same. They don't have the same values. They don't, they don't run things the same. Everything is very different. Like David, when you and I were in China, uh, it was very different than the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, we, were, we were protected over there. Yeah. Uh, but remember, remember where, were, where were we when we were hosted by the, by the uh, communist government? Uh, I forget what city it was in. Remember, we went in that big room. Yeah, it was uh, crazy. Yeah, and to me, that's how they do things, mm -hmm. uh, and that that's acceptable. That's the way it's done, whether you like it or not. And that's so the way they're going to conduct their foreign policy is the way they do things. That's how they think.
And so if we come to the table with the way we think in the West, they come to the table the way they think in the East, and there's a disjoint there, who's going to win in that disjoint? And I think a lot of times there's going to be winners and losers on both sides, and it's not they're not coming together. So you have to find that common ground in there where the way they think is not violated, the way we think is not violated, but somewhere in the middle, both both uh, will be satisfied. That's negotiations and that's foreign policy. At least that's how I see it from my from my experience in the past uh, yeah, when I, I think, was in the government. I think this last uh, paragraph. Mm-hmm. Join forces with European countries in its approach to Beijing rather than allowing Europe to become a battleground in the U.S.-Chinese rivalry. That's why turning your back on your European allies is bad. That's, I mean, that decision was dumb, and it's going to hurt us. And then, this is what you're saying, Beijing, Taipei, and Washington. You must recognize the one-China policy and its intricacies uh, that have kept the peace— in an uninterrupted civil war. So there is this element of Asian culture, Chinese culture of saving face. China had a revolution. Let's just get into some history here. And they had the reds and the whites. Sun Yat-sen and then his disciples, Mao Zedong, Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek was the leader of the whites. And he had to flee to Taiwan. And Mao Zedong and the Reds, they formed the People's Republic of China. Taiwan said, we're Taiwan. And Mao Zedong said, no, we, Taiwan is part of China. You're Chinese nationals. We're part of China. For the last four decades, 40 years, what is it? Uh... Um, the United States calls Taiwan Taipei, you know, Chinese Taipei, because they don't want to call it Taiwan because that would make China lose face because China says, oh, it's still part of us. But Taiwan has autonomy and it's democratic and it industrialized before mainland China did. And, you know, we were getting goods from Taiwan in the 70s and 80s before China sort of made its appearance on the global market. And it's, it's a different system. It's a completely different system. And to allow China to save face for four decades, we've recognized not the country of Taiwan. We've we've recognized it as the island of Chinese Taipei and sort of paid lip service to the fact that it's all China. But it's two very different things. Well, Trump, and this was widely criticized, he received a call from the Chinese Taipei uh, minister during the transition, it's like, you're not supposed to do that because he's not a world leader. It's like receiving, I mean, and so failing to understand the intricacies of what's going on there, Mm -hmm. it might bring it to a head, but there's also this element of Trump's a bull in a China shop and it's not going to end well. Like if you're going to bring it to a head, you need to have some end game. You shouldn't just bring it to a head because you're ignorant. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the damage is done. You, again, you can't undo that damage. And even if somehow everything gets resolved, that memory will always be there. Yes. Because it's losing face. That's how they think. Yeah. It's insulting. And uh, 
Yeah, and that, that will never be that will never go away. That'll always be in there, and not Trump. It'll be the United States. Yes, and you can galvanize support on that years later. Absolutely. They don't respect us. They don't respect our autonomy. They don't respect our sovereignty. Look at what right. happened in 2016 with their leader. That's just proof that they don't. And it's like, well, they have a different leader now, and that leader was a little bit of a wacko. And it's like, well, if bringing that up suits your purposes, they will bring that up, and they'll use it to to engender uh, emotion. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. So should we finish this article and then finish the episode? Yep. This is this is the conclusion. Post-war thinking without the war. Biden has taken office at a moment when the broad bipartisan consensus that underlay U.S. foreign policy for half a century following World War II has collapsed. Since the end of the Cold War, and especially since the end of the so-called unipolar moment of the 1990s, which I mentioned earlier, Americans have debated what kind of world order is most in their interest and what role the United States should assume in it without any common view emerging. U.S. foreign policy specialists fall into two broad camps, one of which advocates continued U.S. leadership globally and across the full spectrum of issues. The other believes that the United States should define its interests more narrowly with regard to both where and what. Within the former group are are those who argue that the world requires leadership and there is no alternative leader to the United States now or on the horizon. Some go further claiming that U.S. interests inevitably will be damaged by more by doing too little than by doing too much. They favor a unilateral brand of leadership and generally approve of armed interventions. They tend to rely more on familiarity with the past than on insight into the future, and they largely ignore the force of domestic public opinion. Others see a more restrained role for the United States as the first among equals in a multilateral community. Recently, some in the first camp have begun to question the fitness of the current order in a world characterized by surging populism and authoritarian governance. They argue for an order defined by a coalition of democracies in one side in opposition to the authoritarian governments on the other. Biden sometimes gives unsettling hints of sharing this view. Should such an order emerge, the world would be less likely to deal successfully with the global challenges that pose the greatest risks to everyone. Nuclear proliferation, corruption, cyber war, pandemics, and climate change. Washington needs to abandon the lazy habit of demonizing China. The second camp sees the U.S. track record of the past 20 years as evidence that Washington has gotten used to defining its interests too broadly which has led to the habit of starting wars and military interventions without a clear national interest at stake. See most of our interventions of the past 20 years. Some who hold this view (laughs) argue for a major retrenchment, pairing back the definition of U.S. core interests to include little more than relations with China, Russia, Europe, and that's all. Promoting democracy, advancing human rights, helping poorer nations develop, and other goals that have consumed U.S. foreign policy over the past three decades would lie beyond those boundaries. Others advocate a much more modest correction, focused mostly on pulling back from the troubled Middle East. It seems unlikely that this debate will be resolved within the next four years. Far more than in a typical presidency, foreign policy during Biden's time in office will be devoted to undoing a mountain of his predecessor's mistakes. You can say that again. Consuming not only time and diplomatic effort, but also political capital. A good deal of what can be accomplished will will depend on whether would-be Trump successors in the Senate make a return to American first policies, a main thrust of their public postures. And although the various expert views on foreign policy do not line up exactly with the differences between the two political parties, the country's deep polarization and almost even partisan representation in Congress mean that nearly every policy shift will be a battle. 
Meanwhile, public opinion is divided. In 2016, the last time the Pew Research Center asked Americans to describe their country's global role in terms of solving world problems, 41% of respondents said the United States did too much, 27% said too little, and 28% said the United States did the right amount. Finally, fresh thinking is always hard to come by. Absent a major upheaval, decades ago, the U.S. diplomat Harlan Cleveland was fond of saying that what Washington needed was post-war thinking without the war. That remains true, but is unlikely in the present environment. If the Biden administration continues, as early indications suggest, it will fall squarely into the first of the two broad camps. And if it stumbles, it will be because it looks too much to the past and tries to do more than the country's resources, will, and reputation can currently support. It will try hard to make progress on key issues, although it may overreach in attempting to promote democracy. But if it can develop a strategically sound relationship with China, reassert itself in relations with Russia, pursue economic policies that see international economic growth as a win-win and not a zero-sum competition, and recapture the confidence of allies and friends, it will have done more than enough to be proud of, even without leaving behind a new foreign policy consensus. There we go. We got through the article, Mikey. <laughs> what did you think? Well, just uh, a big picture uh, when I was reading what she was saying is like, you know, they're saying, uh, you know, do, do we do, do we have a minimalist view of foreign policy and just kind of like let people do what they want to do? Or do we have to try to control everything? And I'm thinking, well, it's not an either or. It's not a zero sum game there. I think I think there there's uh, there's a different approach to this, a more behavioral approach. Uh, looking at different countries that have different interests, uh, that the, all the countries are different, uh, recognize their differences, and then try to bring them together, uh, not violating the differences or making them change uh, from their differences, but trying to mold them into some some global kind of a, a unifying uh, a unifying uh, uh, banner, if you will, or a hallmark. And uh, what my thought along those lines was, uh, look at America. Uh, we left we left England back in the 1700s and said, look, let, let's let's have power of the people. Let's have the people uh, work together and have something that's going to be a, a common good of everyone. Now, that doesn't mean everyone believes it, believe the same way. Uh, we have people from all over the world in America, in the United States all over the world. And so we say, uh, this is not just uh, an Asian country or European country or uh, African country. It's a blending. It's a blending of the best of all to try to come together saying, look, uh, don't violate the cultures, but then have everyone work together on a culture in the United States that's going to be sustainable and it's going to be the common good. And I think uh, more I thought of that, it may be a pipe dream to have something like that with a world type of common good. I says, look, we're not we're not going to violate your culture, but uh, let your culture move towards some common good that's going to be acceptable worldwide. So we can have a world order that's going to have peace and not just war. Uh, war is not necessarily a solution 
long term. Uh, war is something that is for uh, a minority uh, that have a bent toward violence. And that violence is a success unto itself. And it does not have long term value. Even though people think so. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I don't think so. At least that's my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think you go a million different ways. It's like um, in the Xinjiang province, there are Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps, you know, and it, do you allow that because war is destructive? There's no way we should challenge China if they want to take all the Uyghurs and round them up. And let's say they just want to systematically just kill them. Do we say, well, we got to let that happen because war is not productive? No, that's not what I'm saying. I, but yeah, you, I, but I, you, do you see that there's geopolitical things that are going on that may justify war? Uh, yes. But I'm, what I'm saying is <laughs> foreign policy, you don't have to have war. Uh, you have to address these things. Uh, move move towards something to where you're, you're trying to adjust these things through foreign policy uh, to where don't allow uh, have everyone move to something that's going to be more of a common good and that's not good so mm -hmm. they re redefine good and this kind of thing but have all the countries start coming together you don't do that by demonizing people no you have to bring them to the table uh, to move toward a better a better world. I mean, that's that's not going to happen. But the point is, that's kind of where you have to think where you want to go uh, or you'll never get there mm -hmm. or you'll never move in that direction. So I, I know what you're saying. Uh, when you look at the practical aspects of it, you know, like World War Two, should we have entered World War Two? Well, yeah, we were attacked. You know, sometimes you got to do that. You got to you got to do that. You got to stand up for things. Well, China already marched on Hong Kong. You know, you can't say I don't like the Chinese government in Hong Kong. You get thrown in jail. Well, what if they send their warships and their military to Taiwan? Taiwan's our ally. What do we do? Just say, well, war is bad. So China gets Taiwan now. You know, we have to. I mean, that's against our interest. And if they're I mean, if they don't stop at Taiwan, what if they say, you know what else looks good? Japan, South Korea, South Korea looks pretty good. Why don't we, why don't we control right. South Korea? Um, I, that that's a, it's a minimalist. It's not the real view of their strategic position. I mean, I think ta Taiwan would be next and that's scary enough. Uh, where do you draw the line? Cause I think 10 years ago when we were in China, it would have been unthinkable for the mainland authorities to come in and, dominate Hong Kong. We were in Hong Kong. And it seemed like a much different vibe culturally, uh, historically, than mainland. And yes, it was two, wait, two nations, one system, one nation, two systems. That's what they called it back then. There's, you know, you had the Hong Kong dollar, the all the remnants of the British rule, all of that sort of political hierarchy in place. And that existed separate from mainland government. Well, the mainland government sort of just decided last year, two years ago, there's this guy in the White House. He's not going to challenge us. We can assert our dominance. What's he going to do? 
He wants to get this trade deal done. He wants us to buy $100 billion of soybeans. And he's going to give us Hong Kong for that. We're going to go into Hong Kong with our guns, basically make it not free. And the U.S. won't do anything because we're promising the president that we'll buy some soybeans and he might win the Midwestern states in the election in 2020. That's They bought Hong Kong for, they literally sold uh, Donald Trump a packet of magical beans for Hong Kong. And that doesn't seem right to me. I don't know. But they got away yeah, with but, it. Yeah, but what I'm saying is much, is the bigger picture. Philosophically, uh, we should try to avoid philosophically, war. Philosophically, yeah. I'm talking about the bigger picture. If you don't think that way, you'll never get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if you think, we got to do that. We have to go and, and declare war on ABC. Let's do that. Boom. Well, was that the whole purpose of your foreign policy? Or was that something on a path towards something that's bigger and better philosophically? And I think you always have to think, move towards something uh, which is uh, a better a better world. Always move in that direction. Yeah. And don't just think short term. Don't just think. Uh, don't don't think uh, mind. Uh, just short term. Well, I anyway that that's what I'm trying to say. I liked. Uh... So that's what I was thinking of when you when they're reading that the 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 wrap up it says yeah. Uh, let, let's let's look at the bigger picture. Let's don't look at just uh, we solve that. We solve that. We solve that. We solve that. So therefore, we're, we're in a peaceful nation, no a peaceful world. No, we're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to change uh, countries and change relationships and foreign policy is part of that. Well, I like the article and it said, you know, we need to develop approach a balanced non-ideological approach. We need to d- determine where do we agree. You know, where do we disagree and when are we willing to use our power? And then, you know, it says the Trump's approach swung from fawning praise of President Xi Jinping to unrelieved enmity and pointless name calling. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the idea of like saying in foreign relations, instead of calling people names. And I think that the problem with Trump was it was all about his base and reelection and look at me, I can call Xi Jinping, you know, names. And this is the China virus. And never about how do we move the ball forward on these critical issues to our nation. Which mm-hmm. is, I think, a good, I would say, if you're the president, asking, you're looking yourself in the mirror every day and say, how do we move the ball forward on these critical issues to our nation, is a good question to ask yourself. And I don't think that he he may not have ever asked himself that question. Or he really has either no interest in asking that question and or, or no capability or ability to even think of an answer to any question like that. I, I think that it's no interest. And I also think you would hope that your leaders are there to move the ball forward on issues of importance to the nation. But I don't think that was the value system that was being employed for the last four years. So why would you ask that question if that's not something you value? 
Right. And even if you ask that question and ask a response or policy based on that type of question and the value of the question, there may be no ability to actually have any answer. Mm -hmm. He didn't ha he didn't have the ability to, to actually come up with solutions to problems. Yeah. His, so his solutions were very short term. That's that's what I'm getting at. Yep. Well, one, he has, he has no interest. Two, he has no ability. He can't do it. <laughs> yeah. That's where that's lack, lack of interest meets lack of ability. What do you have? Stagnation. Um, well, I think we've solved all the world's problems. I enjoy this. I enjoy going through an article and sort of picking it apart. It's fun, don't you think? Uh, well, I really enjoy it. It's stimulating. It's healthy, uh, mentally healthy. It helps your mind think. And I think everybody should think. And that's why everyone should talk. But listen while they would talk. Listen more than they talk. And maybe we could do another one tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I just keep doing these things because whether everyone may not. I, I enjoy it. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. I like it. I think it's stimulating. It's, it's, it's good food for thought. And we could talk about different things, too. Foreign policy is a really good topic mm -hmm. because it's it's important to our lives. Yeah, and but also technology. Uh, you can you do you you uh, you can talk a lot about technology that you've learned of that that's coming down the pike. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we could call it there. We've made it an hour and a half. This is our longest episode ever. Yeah, we could probably go go more because it's so important. But really, it takes about twenty minutes to read these things. So we only talked an hour. We listened for 20 minutes to someone else. And we tried to understand what they were saying, right? We tried to understand what they were saying. That's right. All right. So I, I got the theme music playing. Is there anything you want to say before we leave? Yeah. Sons of Sequoia says, keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. We'll see you next time. Okay, bye. <laughs>